All right, so first off, this is a Christianity episode. If you're not that interested in Christianity or religion and how it relates back to politics, I'm not judging you. You can skip this hour and a half and go do something that will make your life a little better. Uh, But it is also, in my opinion, a great episode, if I can say that. Um, I kind of held off on putting this one out because I had a bunch of religious episodes kind of in a row that I recorded. So I actually recorded this about a month ago, and I don't know why I waited. It's so good. Uh, I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. If you were to kind of try and figure out, like, what's the one thing that Dan has been thinking about for six months? It's basically this conversation. Now, speaking of Christianity, today and tomorrow are big days because episodes one and two of Reconstruct, my new podcast with my co-host John Rains, are live. Episode one is live today. Episode two goes live tomorrow on Tuesday. The show basically is addressing faith and doubt, both in a deconstructing and reconstructing manner. Topics that we'll be tackling on the show include predestination, race and theology, homosexuality, women in ministry, hell and salvation, how to read the Bible, end times theology, American exceptionalism and colonialism, and more. And we'll be highlighting various answers to all of these questions, not just giving one answer. Because not only do John and I often not agree on those answers, but we usually have a guest. Tomorrow's, for instance, is Dr. Peter Enns. And we make an effort to include answers that neither of us find convincing, but that other thoughtful people of faith are convinced by. And we think that that's an important part of tackling these really complicated, messy, and often not central questions. Anyway, if this sounds interesting to you, look up Reconstruct, all one word, on your podcast app and click subscribe, or head to reconstructpodcast.com to listen there. And if you like it, please leave us a rating and review, especially at the beginning of a podcast. It really helps you get up in the charts on iTunes, which then helps other people find the show. So now on to this amazing interview from a couple weeks back with Dr. Greg Boyd that I cannot wait to hear what people think about. Okay, we've got Dr. Greg Boyd here. Uh, You've asked me to call you Greg, which I am very happy about because I feel weird calling people professor or doctor if I don't. I agree. If they're not my doctor, they're not my professor, it's just odd. So I think we need to start off here by saying you're not like a political writer or political thinker primarily. You're a theologian and a pastor. Your doctorate Mm -hmm. is in theology. Yeah. But you are pretty prolific. And so you have thought and written about many issues. How many books have you published, just to give us an idea? I've authored or and or co-authored um, 20, I think. I, I, I think it's 20. Uh, and then <laughs> I've got another one coming out in two weeks. So that'll be a, a two-volume work. And I don't know if that counts for one or two. But uh, <laughs> so I, in, in two weeks, it'll be 21. Okay. Well, any, think, anybody who anybody to whom you ask how many books have you published, and they start by going, um, you know that that's they've written quite a bit. Well, yeah, I counted them. Someone asked me, so I actually went back and counted them a while ago, and I think it was twenty at that time. <laughs> author, co-author. <laughs> uh, we should all we should all be so lucky and prolific. Um, so I want to just let people know how I became acquainted with you. 
I became acquainted with you through theological reading and listening, uh, podcasts, sermons, and books and articles of yours, basically because of your work on hell and um, open theism, what's called open theism, the idea that uh, the future is truly open, that God has not sort of preordained everything or doesn't necessarily even know. In, in the sense that we can say no. The future is partly composed of possibilities. That's what I would say. I like that. So, so God knows everything exactly as it is. And so if possibilities are real, then God knows possibilities. Right. So anyway, that's how I kind of found out about you. But you also have been writing, you have a book called The Myth of the Christian Nation. Mm-hmm. And you have written and spoken about sort of the intersection of politics and the Christian life. Um, but also, I just I will I wanted to have you on because I think of you as a very clear thinker. Some days I'm better than others. <laughs> <laughs> that well, that's true for all of us. We all have our foggy moments. <laughs> but so, why don't you just walk us through why you decided to write "Myth of a Christian Nation"? Like, why did you write a book about that? Well, um, I got to go back a little bit. I guess around 2004. My own theology had evolved in, in, in kind of a distinctly Anabaptist direction. The church had evolved more and more in an Anabaptist direction throughout the 90s. Um, and Anabaptism know, is, is, for people who don't know, is characterized by uh, pacifism. Yeah, well, that's one of the distinctives. But the other thing, a, a distinctive is the uh, conviction that the kingdom of God is, is of a very different sort of animal than all versions of the kingdom of the world. Yeah. And so, because the kingdom of God always looks like Jesus, and it always, more specifically, it looks like the, the cross, because you're, you're sacrificing for others. But in, in 2004, there was just an unprecedented amount of pressure being put on, uh, especially pastors of large churches, to steer the flock in a certain way, you know, and, and that certain way was, was to vote for George Bush and the whole yeah. right-wing kind of thing. And, and, um, and so, you know, people, it really came from people in the congregation who watch Christian television or listen to Christian radio. And the pe- people be saying, make sure that your pastor is, you know, doing this, that, and the other thing. And there's also a lot of organizations that were, were writing and saying, here's material that you need to give your people and all that stuff. So these are like non, these are nonprofits or these are like super PACs that are funded by whomever? Well, you know, there, there are organizations, um, right-wing organizations. Yeah, nonprofits, I, I, I guess. Just you know, the propaganda machine, you know, it's just uh, yeah, it's all over. So anyways— I felt, and my board got on board with this, that it was a, a time for a good teaching moment to us to really lay out and get clear on the theology of this church and why we've never had a flag in the church and why we never are telling people how they should vote and we just don't weigh in on that and, and, and why you know, we don't celebrate the 4th of July or, or uh, you know, celebrate the military or Veterans Day or any of that. And so there was a series that we did uh, called The Cross and the Sword. And uh, it was quite controversial. <laughs> uh, we ended up losing about 1,000 people. Wow. Out of how many total? Uh, out of about 4,000. Okay. Uh, it's about a quarter of the congregation. Uh, but we knew that it would probably be a costly thing. Uh, and I'm really glad we did it because I didn't realize how much I had been sort of min- downplaying some of the distinctive things hmm. that, that I've – without knowing it, you just kind of naturally do this. And and uh, hadn't fully been bringing people along, kind of on where I was evolving. But once we named this thing, uh, it becomes kind of a rallying point for us, and it feels really good to be able to not have to tiptoe around things. So the the book then came out of that series. We thought hey, that really hit a chord, uh, and and we thought this is something that you know needs to have a broader audience. And so 
I, uh, on the basis of the sermon, kind of just use that as a launching pad and then wrote this book, Myth of a Christian Nation. Great. So here's a quote from that book that I really like. And it was posted as a, as a blog post recently, sort of as the election is ramping up and everybody's getting sort of frothing at the mouth. So here's the quote. <laughs> here's the quote of yours. The myth of America as a Christian nation with the church as its guardian has been and continues to be damaging both to the church and to the advancement of God's kingdom. Among other things, this nationalistic myth blinds us to the way in which our most basic and most cherished cultural assumptions are diametrically opposed to the kingdom way of life taught by Jesus and his disciples. Instead of living out the radically countercultural mandate of the kingdom of God, this myth has inclined us to Christianize many pagan aspects of our culture. Instead of providing the culture with a radically alternative way of life, we largely present it with a religious version of what it already is. And end quote. Couldn't so, say it better myself. <laughs> so I'd like to go through this like one sentence at a time and just talk about it a bit more. So this first sentence is the myth of America as a Christian nation with the church as its guardian has been and continues to be damaging both to the church and to the advancement of God's kingdom. So when you talk about the church as its guardian, the guardian of America, I can't help but think of Trump while he was still a candidate Trump saying Christianity will have immense power in my administration. The idea being Falwell, all these guys, hey, you guys are going to have a seat at the table again and you then can protect America from, I don't know, right. forces of evil or sinfulness. And then your last phrase is, this damages the advancement of God's kingdom. Can you tell us what you mean by God's kingdom? Well, the, the, the central definition of it would be, uh, like, like Jesus is the current incarnation of God, so he's the perfect manifestation of the reign of God. The kingdom of God is just the reign of God. And everything about Jesus' life is is thematically oriented towards the cross. The cross summarizes and culminates everything he was about. And so I think the quintessential uh, manifestation of, of the kingdom, it's also the quintessential manifestation of God's character, is the cross. Uh, and so it's always about manifesting God's self-sacrificial love and uh, um, what it is to, to live under the reign of the crucified Christ and to replicate that character. So that's the essence of the kingdom of God. And for people who are not church who are listening, you basically mean the foundational sort of central claim of the Christian religion is that the infinite loving God became finitely man and suffered death willingly, however you want to wrap it up, to show his infinite love for his creatures. Yep, yep, the, you can go further, but yeah. Yeah, sure. But that, that the character of God is revealed in the fact that God would, the almighty creator God who holds every molecule in existence, would set aside all of his divine prerogatives, which hear this in Philippians 2, and he be, in order to become a human being, and then go even further and take on our sin and our curse on, on Calvary. Uh, he couldn't have gone any further than he went. And the, the unsurpassable distance that he went and the unsurpassable sacrifice he made reveals the unsurpassable perfection of the love that he is. So the Bible says God is love, 1 John 4, 8, and it defines love by pointing us to the cross, 1 John three sixteen. And so, uh, yeah, the, the kingdom is manifesting God's love, which is defined by the cross. Okay, so if God's kingdom is... Jesus and the cross, sort of infinite becoming finite, dying, literally dying, and then Christianity is we replicate that, we imitate Christ by dying to ourselves. Here's your next sentence. Among other things, this nationalistic myth 
blinds us to the way in which our most basic and most cherished cultural assumptions, so the the stuff that kind of makes us American, right, right, are very often diametrically opposed to this way of life that Jesus taught that we have to think. So, well, give us some examples of these most cherished cultural assumptions. Uh, you have the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. <laughs> yeah. And so, and that is a very great cultural mantra. You know, that's wonderful. But as a kingdom person, I sacrifice my right to everything. I, I, I've surrendered my rights, and uh, uh, I, I don't, I'm not pursuing happiness. I'm pursuing God's will, which leads to joy—not necessarily happiness, but it does lead to joy. Yeah, or, or, or liberty. You know, I have my rights. So you have the, you know, the, the Christians fighting for the, their rights, and everyone's worried about them taking away their rights. And we want to, you know, have our right not to have to serve gay people or whatever. And I, I just can't imagine Jesus, you know, doing that. He, hmm. he the king, he set aside all of his rights. You know, if God did it, how much more are we called to do it? He set aside Philippians two, all, all of his prerogatives didn't cling to anything, but he emptied himself. And so it's about emptying yourself um, uh, for the sake of others. A, a big part of our, you know, uh, culture is is uh, well, honestly, it runs on greed, and, and I'm not critiquing it for that. You know, capitalism runs. You, people always have to want more, and so we have a whole system of, of creating in people a hunger for more. You know, every advertisement, in one way or another, is saying you're not quite okay as you are. You really need this product, and it, you know it, it works. Uh, it's it's kind of brilliant. Take you know this vice and turn it into a virtue, and, and and you can build an economy on it. But as a follower of Jesus, I have to know that you know, Jesus said, "Be careful about all kinds of greed." I, I'm I, I'm supposed to be moving in the opposite direction divesting myself rather than accumulating, you know, all of this. The individualism of our culture goes up against the community value of the New Testament. Yeah. Um, you know, idolatry all over the place. I mean, where we are finding our worth, an idol is anything we find our ultimate worth in. And, and people find their worth in their possessions and their money and their achievements and their sexiness and their you name it. And uh, to follow Jesus means we have to be uh, bucking up against all of that. So the contrast is all important. The contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. In, in the culture, everyone wants you know, as much power as they can, the power to impose your will on others. That's what, that, that's what the politics of the world runs by. You want to impose your will on others because you believe that your will is superior and more, you care more and you're smarter than others. So you want to get the power to impose your will on others. But in the kingdom, we're, we have to be lording over anybody. Jesus said, the pagans, they lord over one another, but it should not be so among you. Among you, the first should be last, the last shall be first. It's better to serve than it is to be served. And so the, the kingdom is fundamentally opposed to fundamental aspects of the culture. But if we start to say that the culture is Christian uh, or that we're the guardians of the culture, well, then, then we end up Christianizing the very stuff we're supposed to be resisting. Yeah, and that, it's not new with America. I mean, this goes back to the third, fourth century, and, and this is Christendom, the Church of Christendom. And um, my whole passion is to uh, help people see that the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated looks very, very, very different than every version of Christendom. America, British, you name it. Roman. Uh, it yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it's it's very different. So that made me think of two things. The first you just got at, which was that it isn't that. The kingdom of heaven, so defined, is explicitly anti-American. It's just – it's going to rub up against every single cultural moment through – it's going to rub up against many of the norms of any particular cultural moment. Those norms change over time. So, for instance, uh, 
you know, like in Denmark today and in the Nordic countries, they're far less individualistic than America. So you're not going to have it rubbing up against that quite as much if you were Danish as if you're American, for instance. Uh, but if it's like 1200s and you're a Catholic out, you know, killing certain people to convert them from Islam or whatever, then it's going to bump up against some cultural moments of that time. Exactly. We're not killing, we're not threatening to kill Muslims right now to turn them into Christians. We're doing other things. Exactly. Uh, and, and the danger, Jacques Lull has, has, has been brilliant on this, uh, in his book on the politi- the kingdom of God and the kingdom of, on the politics of God and the politics of man, I think it's called. Uh, but where he shows that since the birth of Christendom in the fourth century, when the church accepted political power, and it's going to be the high priest of the, of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, ever since then, the, the, the tendency has been for Christianity to adopt whatever version of the kingdom of the world it, it, people found themselves in. It gets co-opted by whatever state it is. You know, and, and so if it's in a socialist state, it becomes the champion of socialism. If it's in a capitalism, the champion of capitalism, whatever. And so it's not... I'm not saying that there's something particularly decadent about America. Uh, it, it is decadent, but cultures have always been decadent. And, and so the job of the kingdom is to distinguish itself from every particular thing that is anti-kingdom in any particular culture and not to be co-opted. Okay, so the other thing I thought there was that, you know, some of what we're talking about, we're getting a little bit messy in the way we talk about American values and assumptions. On the one hand, we're talking about kind of cultural norms and values like bootstrapping, you know, American individualism, uh, the frontier West, sort of the, the idealized image of the cowboy. But then on the other hand, there are like political science theories that America operates on. Like for instance, the checks and balances within three branches of government, which are based on essentially a Christian view of man's depravity, human depravity to say, Hey, each of these branches and each of these people are craven and they're going to want power and we're going to separate things, you know, we're going to set things up such that it will keep us from a certain kind of tyranny because uh, this is just what we believe about human nature. So in that sense, you could say, well, hey, that's really great that, you know, the checks and balances of the three branches is based on a Judeo-Christian concept, but it, it's still just different than the thing that Jesus told us to do as Christians, right? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, we, we could debate how much uh, the Judeo-Christian concept of human depravity played into the thinking of the founding fathers. Uh, maybe it did, or maybe they were just kind of savvy because they had just run from the monarchy in England, you know, and yeah. they, they, they were just thinking, how do we avoid that? But I would agree with you, it's smart. I think it's smart. But uh, there's nothing Christian about it. If you mean by Christian, Christ-like, because Christ didn't come down here and give us a great political theory. Here's right. how you run the world. Nor did nor did he give us, you know, medical advice. Like Jesus didn't tell us about penicillin, for instance. Exactly. So you, you can't say you have a, a Christian medication or something like that. Right. You can say it's smart, and, and decent, wise, but yeah. there's nothing distinctly Christian about it. So then uh, this leads great to my next question. What would a Christian nation look like? Is that even possible to no. have one? It's impossible. Why is it impossible? I, 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 it's a, it's a like a Christian bicycle, uh, or let's have a Christian T-shirt. Or you know, it's the reason it's not possible is this. Uh, I'd say two things. One is the very idea of nations wasn't God's ideal. Uh, you know, that gets birthed out of a judgment on sin. 
know, Babel is the start of that whole, you know, kind of start of that whole thing. Do you need to take that story literally and historically to hold that view that nations are not sort of God's plan for people? No. It works either way. I, I don't leverage everything on that. By virtue of the fact that uh, the kingdom is transnational is enough to show that nations are, are, are a step off of God's will. And yeah. so are governments. You know, the, the, the idea of humans ruling humans, I don't think was part of the original plan for humanity. Well, humans were to have lord over the earth and the animal kingdom, where it extended God's loving character over them. It never says to lord over one another. You know, Israel wasn't supposed to have a king. Initially, uh, God wanted to be their king to kind of display to the world what it would look like to have a theocracy. Uh, but then it came a point where they started clamoring for a king uh, in First Samuel 8. And that's when the, the Lord says, that, you know, to Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So to put trust in a human king is to reject God as king. It's kind of interesting. Uh, so God acquiesces to that, but it's an acquiescence. So when Jesus comes here, as I interpret him, Dan, everything he says is about... To align up with the kingdom of God is to line up with a, you know, you're now a citizen of a different kingdom that has no national lines, has no human authorities. To call him master is to call no one else master. And that was clear in the first century. To call Jesus Lord meant you're saying Caesar is not Lord. Uh, or to say that Jesus was the son of God is to say that Caesar is not the son of God. Yeah. Uh, we can't have two masters. So as I see it, if my allegiance is to Christ, it can't be to a nation and, and, or any kind of human uh, authority. I want to operate on a totally different plane from that. But of course, your allegiance to your government, especially nowadays, I mean, I think, I wonder if in Jesus's time, under Roman occupation, if Caesar is Lord, Caesar is the son of God, might have been a lot closer to Jesus's Lord than, uh, for instance, go the speed limit, use the courts to settle disputes, pay your taxes, is you know what I'm saying? Like there's a, there's less opposition between what we are required to do as citizens of the United States and what they were required to do as subjugated peoples of the Roman Empire. I'm not sure. You don't think so? Uh, well, it, it, sure. There's a difference, but uh, it's it's one of degree, not kind. It, it's like this in the New Testament. You have the instruction, you know, honor the emperor and and pay your taxes. Because you, you want to live peacefully. So you obey the laws as much as possible. Yeah. Right? But it, they're obeying the laws not because their government has any intrinsic authority over them. They're obeying the laws because the one who has authority over them tells them to obey the laws. And I, I, the gist of it is, like, it's not worth fighting about. You know, just go – because you want to spread the kingdom. And so don't get caught up in unnecessary fights. And, and, and so that's essentially the same position we're in. In, in. in the Roman Empire, the thing that got people tripped up was – you didn't have to actually believe that, that Caesar Augustus was divine. No one cared what you believed. But to keep the social order, you did have to light incense in some sections to, to the statue. Or at least there was kind of a, a, a nod of the head that you had to do to show your allegiance to Caesar. It was basically pledging your allegiance to Caesar. Uh, and the Christians wouldn't do that, which is that's when they started to get persecuted. Uh, now, we, now, we're in a situation where we don't get persecuted if we don't say the Pledge of Allegiance or don't show our allegiance in other ways. Uh, that could change. Who knows? It's possible for that to change. But in some ways, the fact that you're not persecuted for it, it makes it more dangerous. And this is why I was pushing back on your thing. Like, our situation is different. Because precisely because we don't have a price to pay for disobedience, uh, for, for, for bucking it, uh, we can begin to think that, hey, it's kind of Christian. 
It's, it's, it's more Christian than the Roman Empire is. And I want to make it clear that I could say it's more decent than the Roman Empire. It's better. It's, you know, it has, it, it gives you much more human rights, but I don't think it's more Christian. Yeah. To, just to, to be clear, I was more saying that um, less deference is required of us. Not that not that the system is necessarily better or, or whatever, although I do think it is more decent. It, it's more civil. It, it is better, but, but I, I, it's, that's why I say it's like having a Christian bicycle. You can have good bicycles or really lousy bicycles, but a good bicycle isn't more Christian than a lousy bicycle. Uh, you can have good governments and you can have lousy governments, but even the best ones aren't more Christian than the lousy ones. Okay, so but let's talk about an issue, an issue on each side of the political spectrum that is a moral issue that runs directly through government. So this is kind of me pushing back a little bit. So on the right, you have the issue of abortion. And on the left, you have the issue of refugees. Okay, so abortion is legal in all 50 states. Uh, and at state levels, there are different laws about what abortions are, are permitted, when, what kind of consent for underage you know, teenagers uh, is, is needed from parents or guardians or whatever. All of these things determine how many abortions can happen. And of course, many people, if not most people, have a very strong view about what an abortion is, if it is the taking of a human life that should be sovereign or not, uh, if it's a kind of a murder or if it is a, a biological procedure more akin to surgery. People have different views on that. But there's no there's no uh, denying the fact that it runs through government. It runs through the laws. And the laws affect how many abortions there will be and how well mothers will be cared for, et cetera. And then for people, more activists on the left, you've got refugees. Now, there's a biblical injunction in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to care for the traveler, the stranger in your midst. And it's not a big jump to say, hey, a refugee is a really great example of a stranger in your midst, someone forced out of their own land against their will, usually through violence or, or political or religious persecution. They want to come here. They have a chance to live out the days that God has for them. And in fact, in, in for instance, my city in Seattle, there are only two organizations that resettle refugees. One of them is evangelical. One of them is Catholic. So it is really the church is able to do that work. And yet Trump's elected. No more refugees are being let in from anywhere for the rest of the year. That runs straight through government. If I am a Christian who wants to care for refugees, I have to vote such that they can be let in. So what do you do with that? Well, which one do you want me to talk about first? The refugee? Let's, or talk, the, about, let's talk about refugees. Yeah. You got, you got two, two kind of hot ones there. Oh, yeah. Um, co I'm coming in hot, Greg. Yeah, here you come. <laughs> On the one hand, uh, the call to care for refugees it's a very good issue, and I'm not going to act like I have all the answers on this thing here. But I, I always like to start from the known and work towards the unknown. And and so what I know is that I, I, I do feel a call to that. I think the church is called to that, and uh, we do that. I, I, I have personally sacrificed to help people who are here, whether legally or illegally, uh, get citizenship and get acclimated and get on their feet. And um, uh, we have people in the church who are actively doing that in, in, in ministry. They are in our midst already, and so the first order of business is to live out our faith towards them. And I want to always be very careful, because uh, here is the temptation, Dan, is so often we zoom out to the, the bigger issue. What should government do about immigration stuff? And our time and energy is spent trying to resolve that, 
and all it does is distract from us actually doing it. <laughs> you know, sure. uh, and so and and because you have to respect the ambiguity that is inherent in all political situ- uh, political uh, issues in, in a pluralistic society. The minute you start talking about this, you're going to have a divide. You're going to have differences. You know, what is wise to have a strong border and screen everybody, you know, to protect American citizens? Or is it better to have a more of an open policy and invite them all in? I can see how good and intelligent people disagree on that kind of stuff. Yeah. I am not wise enough to figure out the exact right immigration policy for a nation, our size or Germany or whatever. And so I, want to, I first want to always ask the question, how can you and I bleed for what's right in front of our face yeah. and not get distracted by talking about the, the, those, those kind of issues? Having said that, if we're now living this out and we're actually sacrificing for the immigrants in our midst, then we can ask the question, well, you know, here, here it does seem to be, if ever there's a case where the government, a law of the government is preventing us from doing what we're called to do, this would be it. And in, in Acts 5, you know, they give an order to Peter to stop preaching, and Peter says, I'm sorry, I've got to obey God. Uh, and so that would, at the very least, uh, I think, warrant a Christian, if, if needed, to disobey the law that says no immigrants and go ahead and welcome in immigrants and help them. It may, you could make the case that, that it would, uh, you know, if there's a policy of not allowing any immigrants to, to say Christians should do what they can to, you know, push back on that because we want to take care of immigrants. You could do that. And I wouldn't have an issue with that as long as, A, the people are actually bleeding, you know, so this isn't just a distraction, and, and B, that, that uh, um, they're, they're doing it with a full recognition of the ambiguity. Being a Christian doesn't make us smarter when it comes to running the world, it actually makes us dumber because we're just not as savvy uh, when it comes to the nuances and the, you know, the, the quagmires you can get into with, uh, with, with these sorts of things. Yeah, so the, with that provision, I'd say, yeah, fine. I, I have myself wondered if it's appropriate to join the protests. Uh, but I'm not doing it here because I'm trying to run the world. I just want to help the, the immigrant. I want the church to have access to that. Yeah, I do think we have a little difference of opinion about – some of this higher order stuff, like for instance, when you say being a Christian should actually make us worse at running the mechanisms of, of international governance or whatever. Oh, it I, might. I, I, I think of like Dog Hammarskjöld, who was like quietly a Christian mystic and ran the UN. You know, I think of like these these people behind the scenes who lived out their Christianity so thoroughly to their core that they were able to be peacemakers, not just in their own lives, but on the level of nations? Maybe I should rephrase it then. Okay. It's not that it should make, make us dumber, but I think it, it, it tends to do that. Uh, it, and here's why. In my experience, people of faith tend to, and, and, and there's exceptions, but they tend to think in absolute categories. And because faith is kind of absolute. I, you know, I'm going to be, I make a commitment. You know, I'm supposed to live like this, and I have to obey. And you know, it, it, it's absolute. Whereas in the political realm, it, it's so ambiguous that it, if you apply absolute categories here, you're just not going to be good at thinking through political issues. Yeah, and and this could lead to the abortion issue. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. So I had all sorts of debates around this in the you know 2004, five, and six. Um, the thing was this, I was trying to communicate, and I still am trying to communicate, this conviction that 
from a, a kingdom perspective, what matters most with regard to the abortion issue is how are you willing to bleed to help a mother go full term with an unwanted pregnancy? Yeah, wow. Because uh, the, the kingdom is never about how good your opinions are. It's about how, how Christ-like your life is. And so, uh, so the call of think- Jesus is never to simply vote pro-life or give money to a pro-life super PAC. The call of Jesus in your mind, if there is abortion going on in your town or city, is to consider how you might sacrifice to either help a, a mother who would have a hard time with their child, to adopt, to whatever. Absolutely. It, it, it's not about how smart you are. You know, it, It's about how you're willing to bleed. And then to try to help people, because there's so many people who that I've met who have this idea that if, if you voted for a candidate that isn't uh, pro-life, meaning against a, a, all abortion, then you, you're not really Christian. Uh, you know, that you're, that one issue should just, you know, trump all issues, no pun intended. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Over a, the last poll I saw on this, uh, which is about four years old, but something like 85 to 90 percent of Americans, when, when asked by a pollster, agreed on two things. The fewer the abortions, the better, and the later the abortion, the worse. So we all agree that it'd be good to cut down unwanted pregnancies and to prevent later unwanted pregnancies. The trouble is that both sides are so afraid of giving an inch. Uh, they're afraid that if they give an inch, the other side's going to take a mile. And so you've got these folks don't even want to have any kind of birth control that would keep the, the fertilized egg from attaching to the womb wall. And then you have people defending partial birth abortion who loathe it, but they are afraid that if they give up on this, then yeah, other things will go. Yes. Okay. So it may be the case and I, I, I I'm, I'm dumb. Okay. I, I don't know, uh, but I'm just throwing this <laughs> out. I can see how, I can see how someone would think this, that maybe if you really want to reduce abortions, it could be that the thing that's causing that's most causing abortions right now is the fact that both sides are unyielding. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't necessarily be wrong. Uh, you haven't heard it, but, Listeners of the show might remember the Michael Ware episode. He worked for Obama, and there was a bipartisan bill that almost went through, but it was deemed too politically costly by both sides before it went through. There you go. And, and so if you had a, a person who was flexible, uh, who was a negotiator, and say, can we meet in the middle here? That maybe we, that would maybe be saving lives. People who are uh, – some of the folks I talk to who are you know, thinking in absolute categories, they think that it's somehow they're compromising their faith if you compromise your vote. No, I must stand for the person who is most pro-life, and it, it feels wrong to them to ever compromise that. And so I've tried to like, help them see this. I go, look, at what if, 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 if this view is right – and I'm not saying it is, but it could be right. If this view is right, then – you're actually contributing to the death of babies by voting yeah. in an uncompromising pro-life way. Yeah. And just to try to get them to see the ambiguity of the political system. Okay, so let me try and make an argument out of your premises then here. So premise one, a Christian should be called to – and I'm doing this on the fly, so this might not be a valid argument. But premise one, a Christian should be called to the kingdom of God, not whatever – political expediency or rules or policies they think are best in their own mind. But really a Christian should actually be able to say, you know what? The laws of the nation are just not as important as my ability to live out a self-sacrificial life. Okay. Right. In terms of laying out the kingdom, 
what laws are in the land is irrelevant. I mean, it, it, you're, you're called to live out the kingdom. Right, okay. And, uh, and uh, whether they're good laws or bad laws or anything like that. Okay, so but at least it would reduce a Christian's sort of like obsession with the, the laws of the land. I would hope so, yeah. Okay, so then if someone is less obsessed with the laws of the land, then they should be the type of person to be the kind of person you're saying, to say, let me mediate, let me be a peacemaker here. We all agree we want fewer abortions. Uh, let's find something, in at least in the short term, that can accomplish this goal and that might get some conversation going. You'd agree with that? Uh, yeah, possibly. If, if okay. they're if they're good, if they had other so, you know skills. Sure, sure. But but the fact of their following Christ would fundamentally make them more capable of that kind of mediating position because their attachment to one side or other of the issue would be lower. It sounds like you're saying. Now, there's other things that could cause a person to have that way. I mean, just sure. being wise could do it. Yeah. But I, I would think that a kingdom person would be, uh, yeah, good at, at bringing people together, a peacemaker on that. So maybe then kingdom life is inherently depolarizing, to use the parlance of our show, or the way that you think of it, to really prioritize the call of Jesus and, and following him should have as a result, naturally, someone relying less on their individual political wisdom and putting less stock in particular policies. Well um, said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, what's going on in America now is, uh, to a large degree, the idolization of ideology. And you know, because of cable news, Folks are now we can get the version of reality that we like, and, and the internet, and, right? Any right, 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 yeah, and, yeah. And, and so, so we get a, a filtered view of reality. Whereas in the past, you know, you only had three stations to go by, and and they had a vested interest in presenting it in a neutral way because they wanted to get as large an audience as possible. Now you've got, you know, it pre-filtered, and everybody likes to watch the version of reality that they agree with because it activates the pleasure centers of their brain, and and they don't like to watch the version of reality they disagree with because it activates their amygdala. And so uh, the, uh, what, what happens is, is now we have people who are losing the capacity to even uh, empathize with or, or get on the inside of people who think differently than they do. Uh, and, and, and so their map is the territory. They have just made an idol of the rightness of their thinking. For a, a kingdom person, if we're living this out consistently, if it means anything, it means we ought to be avoiding that. Uh, because the kingdom, we know, is not about how, how smart we are or how – what kind of insights we have on the laws or whatever. It's all about what are we willing to do? How are we willing to live? Uh, and so you're, that, that should then present a, a, a present with, with the thing where we're not sucked into the, to, to, to the polarization where it's, it's like, you know, Jesus, he calls him Matthew and then he calls him Simon to be his disciple. And the Matthew is a tax collector who's the conservative of the conservatives, the arch conservatives of the first century. And as Simon was a zealot who's a liberal of the liberal. I mean, these people are far more apart than Hillary Clinton and Ted Cruz or you name it. Um, in fact, the zealots used to assassinate the tax collectors. They hated them more than the Romans because they worked for the Romans. But Jesus calls them both to be his disciples. And what's remarkable is there isn't a word said about that in the Gospels. Not a word. Uh, there's not a hint that Jesus sides more with one or the other. And I think that, that what that's showing is that when a Matthew and a Simon, a conservative and a liberal, have Jesus in common and have pledged their allegiance to Jesus, uh, well, their respective political differences are just rendered pretty much inconsequential. 
uh, if you've got Christ in common, your opinions about how the governments of the world should run take a, a, a back seat, to say the least. And so you're right. I, I think a, a kingdom person should be able to stay out of the venomous polarization that now characterizes uh, our, our country. So I've been working on this kind of curriculum that I don't know what it's going to be, a, a series of books or a, or a series of videos or a book or um, a class, uh, like an adult Sunday school class or something. But I've been looking at it more through identity. And you're, you seem to be talking about it more through self-sacrificial action. Um, what defines a Christian is somebody who is willing to bleed, as you say, for the cause of the less fortunate. That's, but behind that is identity. Right. I mean, so I, well, I think we're talking about the same thing. Uh, if anything, yours is a little bit harder to swallow because it's probably because it's more true and it requires <laughs> more of us. But I've been thinking of it a little bit more abstractly about, you know, ident- the identity of a person who's a Christian really. And, and this actually works for someone of any religious bent. Anyone religious who believes that God in some way created the universe, anybody who thinks that God is responsible for the billions of galaxies, each containing billions of stars, anyone who thinks that that God loves them in some way, uh, cares about them, has any sort of plan, has any sort of relationship with them, anyone who feels God's presence in any way and, and thinks that 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 God is somehow responsible for the physical universe as well as, you know, love, beauty, art. Uh, For that person to put as their primary identity a political party or a particular cause is just sort of like immediately ludicrous. I would think so. Um, It seems to me. It's, of course, hard to do this in practice. But when we think about it, and, and the reason it's hard to do in practice is kind of the stuff you're talking about. There's these psychological facts of just how our brains work, right? When we see news from another perspective, our amygdala gets fired up. We get angry or fearful. It's unpleasant. When a liberal watches The Daily Show or Samantha Bee or or, uh, John Oliver, it's entertaining. It's funny. It makes them feel part of the group. It's a bonding experience. It is almost impossible to fight back against those brain forces that we have. Uh, For whatever reason, we've got them. They're here. That's how our brains work. But if we really are willing to question things, we ought to admit that our, our identity is, as loved children of God is sort of the, the way I like to distill it, uh, should supersede any smaller tribal, political, temporal identity. I'm wondering what you think, if you have any more thoughts on sort of the identity side of it. Well, no, I, I, I preach this all the time. This is like one of my major messages. I, I think that, that for Christians, the, the most fundamental call of our life is to get our, have our identity. I mean, we are in Christ Jesus. Paul uses that phrase all the time. And, and whatever else that means, I think it to mean that uh, my sense of being a person, my sense of, of having worth and significance, my sense of having meaning, my sense of having security— a sense of being loved should be derived from what God thinks about me as it's revealed in Christ, especially Christ on the cross. That that should be my core thing. Uh, and everything I do then should be an expression of that. Uh, as opposed to the way most people live is they live to try to feel, uh, get meaning, get security, get significance, become somebody uh, and feel secure. So they're always trying to acquire things, you know, and that's what makes idols of all this stuff. 
But uh, in the kingdom, I think we're supposed to live in the opposite direction. And, and see, if I can get all my identity and my worth and significance and security from what God thinks about me as revealed on the cross, then and only then am I free to give up everything because I don't need it. I, 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 you know, my worth and identity settle in Calvary. And now I don't need to cling to my house. I can give I can you know, invite people in if they need a house. I don't need to get that extra car, and I don't need to have people recognize that I'm a great at this or the other thing, and I don't need to you know, get, keep all my money. I can give it away because it doesn't feed me. It, you know, it, so I think having an identity in Christ is the prerequisite to living a full kingdom life. So the way you're talking about that, you're primarily um, – and this makes sense given the context of American Christianity. You're primarily using this as a critique, it sounds to me, of the sort of – Moral majority, the the Christian conservative mass culture no. in America. No, 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 no. I, I, I would, uh, I'd say this exact same thing regardless of what culture you're in. Uh, you're in Romania. I would give the exact same message. You know, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's what Jesus means. I think when he says, "Die to yourself. If you lose your life, you'll find it." Sure. I guess I just mean you're you're applying it uh, in the last couple minutes to this kind of security that we want. You know, um, I want the borders secure. I, I don't want to lose the physical goods that I have. That's just the variety we have right now. I yeah. Mean, they're always clamoring for that. Christians on the political left can be as uh, guilty of idolatry as Christians on, on the right. Well, so this is where I was going to take it. You, you've t- you talk about this um, concept elsewhere of people feeling good about themselves once they have voted progressively and then they kind of feel like their job is done and you want to push back really hard against that kind of complacency. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, you know, what, what happens is uh, we end up with tokenism here where, where the way you vote and it's, you can feel good about it if you're voting on the right or on the left, you know, I did my job. I, I, I stood for righteousness. Yeah. Hallelujah. And I don't think what your opinion is that you express once every four years or once every two years is, is not the important issue. It's not even, I don't think, relevant. Uh, what's important is how you vote every day of your life. I mean, because everything we do is a vote, Dan. Every yeah. dollar I spend, every moment I spend, it, I'm on this show here because I think it's worthwhile. Right. If I didn't think it was worthwhile, I wouldn't be on here. I'm all, we vote. What are our values? What is important to us? And that's what's expressed by how we spend our time and energy and money. And so to know what a person really thinks about something, don't ask them their opinion and don't ask them, how do you vote? Ask them, how do you live? Hmm. Uh, and honestly, the way a lot of folks live is in contradiction to what they think their values are as expressed by a vote. Oh, I care about the poor. I voted for so-and-so. Uh, what percentage of your income is, is and, and of your time and energy is given to the poor? That's the kingdom question. Yeah. Your, your resources – uh, I think a lot, and I, sometimes I mention it on the show, but I think a lot about um, what's called Catholic social teaching, which is sort of the broad thinking about how a, a Catholic is is to live within the world structures. And the main premise of that teaching is the greater the resources you have, the greater your responsibility is to those with fewer resources. And they don't give a percentage, but it's basically that thing. It's like Hey, the more you have, uh, the more your time, money, energy should be spent toward those with less than you. Yep. It seems that a basic sense of justice would stipulate that. You know, a a definition of of greed is you hoard more than you need when there are others who have less than they need. 
Or gluttony is you eat more than you need when there are others who don't have enough to eat. Hmm. And, and, and so to the degree that we live in that, we're guilty of greed and gluttony. And uh, as kingdom people, we should be swimming the other direction saying, how can we live? I can't make the world fair by my ideas. I'm not smart enough. Uh, maybe somebody is. Good luck. But what I can do is live in a way where I am uh, you know, following God's spirit to be more equitable, to you know, not hoard and to not be gluttonous. So let's talk about a bit of transformation here. In your experience as a pastor – working with countless people and in your own experience, what happens when people start to move away from uh, primarily just expressing political views or voting toward a life of actually bleeding, as you say, a life of actually uh, giving selflessly toward the causes that they were feeling strongly about uh, politically? Well, one thing I, I would say is that they, they tend to, uh, in, in my experience, they discover joy. I, I, I don't think anything makes a person feel joy like investing your life in others in concrete, tangible ways. Uh, you know, we're made in the image of a God who gave himself away, and we're most incongruity with ourselves when we're giving ourselves away. And there's all sorts of studies, non-Christian studies, that show this, that that uh, there's something in our wiring that is, is I mean, just getting out of the house and not focusing on your own problems. You know, we yeah. stare at our own navels and moan and, and, you know, feel victimized and whatever. Get out there and serve and you'll realize that you got it pretty good. And so the van in and of itself is, is a, a good way to get out of depression, but there's a joy in, in that. And I think as people do that, they begin to see the satisfaction of living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Uh, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. That it, it, it you have... Less, uh, not always, but you can. If you're really living this out, uh, you put a little bit less stock in your the rightness of your opinions about how others should do it. Yeah, it makes me think of. Um, there's an on being episode with uh, Xavier Le Pichon. He's one of the two guys who wrote the theory of plate tectonics. So basically, discovered uh, the fact that the Earth's crust is a bunch of plates that move very slowly, and this causes volcanism. This causes actually the production of water on the earth. So it is only because of the clashing of these plates, the fact that they are not stationary, that biological life can exist on planet earth. And he also has spent most of his adult life living in communities with disabled people. He lived at the first large community in France and now has his own home that he and his wife run for people who have children with disabilities, for them to come and live for a while and sort of like get some space and resources. And he claims, and I can't recommend that episode highly enough to anybody, he's a geologist and a, and a spiritual thinker, and he combines them. And he, he basically says fragility is not only at the heart of the Earth's ecosystem, it's fragile. There are these fragile breaking points between the plates where – Conflict happens and, and the earth is broken up and, and from which sprouts the building blocks for organic life. But this is also true in the individual's life. It is only through encountering those who suffer that we actually can find type of joy that is available mm. to humans. Um, wow. So it really reminds me of that, of what, what you're basically saying. It goes along with uh, you know, some aspects of chaos and complexity theory where they define life. I mean, he's dealing with plate tectonics, but 
Uh, I've read that life is what occurs on the precipice of order and chaos. Uh, there's a fine line there. And, and so it's like the only way to truly live is living on the edge. <laughs> you know, that, that, that is when you are most in that zone. It, it, if there's too much order, then you get stagnant. If there's too much chaos, you dissipate. But yeah. it's living on that, 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 it's a dance between order and chaos. And I think there's, you can apply that and like there's a dance in terms of being a self that gives itself away. You have to have a self to give it away, but you have to give it away to have a self. But I think it's interesting to think about like that. So whether or not, you know, these things are sort of ultimately accurate about life sciences or geology or whatever, I do think we could say from just a removed anthropological perspective that the foundational claim of Christianity over and against other worldviews is that self-denial and self-giving love is at the center of human experience. Uh, it's, it is, yep, it, not just the center of human experience. Uh, it, it's, it's the heartbeat of the cosmos. Right. It's basically the thing that we know most about God as a Christian is that he's the kind of God who gives of himself willingly for his creatures. And if you think about it, Dan, that is the only ultimate ideal about which you could never have people killing. Hmm. You take any other ideal, however good or noble it is, if, if that's the highest ideal, then at some point a person would feel justified killing other human beings to protect that ideal. The only ideal that could never result in violence is the ideal of self-sacrificial love. That, that, that is the highest thing. Because it means, whatever else it means, it means you'd rather die than kill. It's, that's why I think there's something intrinsically true about that. Because uh, every other ideal that we've ever had in, in history has been ultimately led to violence. People killed for it. Yeah. I don't want to go down a pacifism rabbit hole here. Um, Too bad. I was trying to lure you there. Come to <laughs> the dark side. Join I, the force. Luke. We, we did actually just have a guest on a couple episodes ago who was – her case for pro-life views comes from a non-violence perspective. And that was really interesting. You might, you might like to listen to that. Well, that's just a different uh, episode. If we could, cause I, I think well, it's, it, but it's you granted that self-sacrificial love is at the center of the universe. Right. But I would not, I would not necessarily agree that Dietrich Bonhoeffer staying behind in Germany rather than escaping to America and attempting to assassinate Hitler was not self-sacrificial love. It might be. And that involves some violence. Yeah, but uh, Bonar himself said it was sin. He, he, he wasn't making a principle there. Uh, he, he, this was the, the teleological suspension of the ethical, you know, where this is God calling him to do something that was inherently sinful. And so he says, I have to obey, but I also have to repent. Uh, anyways, we could. Sure. <laughs> well, fact, there's, there's a whole book out now about that, that argues that thesis that Bonhoeffer wasn't involved in that plot. I don't know if you if, if you've seen that. Huh. Uh, this guy, uh, I forget what it's called, Bonhoeffer on. Uh, it just came out last year, but uh, uh, it's a pretty interesting thing. He, he was involved in that organization, but not not, not even aware of that plot. I, di- I didn't know that, that was a possibility. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> so let's talk about how um, do you want to bring in one other thing that is pertinent from your life and experience that you've spoken about, which is mental health and the anxiety, depression kind of world. And you you kind of skirted past this a minute ago saying the only way to really get a healthy life is to sort of embrace suffering to, to be willing to bleed, to be willing to be self-sacrificial. How does that play into mental health? Uh, well, I, I'm not sure quite how to answer that question. I, I think it's always healthy to, I mean, 
I'll start talking and see if I'm answering your question. If I'm okay. not, you tell me shut up. <laughs> but you know, on the one hand, uh, there are folks who don't have strong enough boundaries, and they can hear the, the, the Christian message, and they they take it to mean that they're supposed to just be a doormat, and 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 so they they are carrying out other people's wishes, and they think that that's Christian. In the most extreme cases, you have people who who uh, will even put up with abusive situations, and they think it's Christian. Oh, I'm suffering, uh, and. That's not at all kingdom suffering. For it to be kingdom, you have to be able to choose it. it. It's not imposed on you. Jesus chose to go to the cross. He wasn't forced to. And so um, you have to have a healthy view of yourself. You know, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, which presupposes that you love yourself. Uh, you are a gift from God, and you need to consider yourself that. And so this isn't about me losing my identity uh, or giving myself away or let people walk on me. But then given if I have that healthy self, the other extreme is where you become narcissistic and it's, you know, you're just living to, you know, with your focus all on yourself. Uh, that's as sick as having no self. The, the, the Christian idea of a healthy self is that you, have, you are aware that you have unsurpassable worth because Jesus gave his life for you. And you're aware that uh, as this self with unsurpassable worth, you are to give yourself away, pour yourself for, other, uh, for others, which doesn't mean you don't get to have any of your own time because you need that. But it means that, that you're not the sole focus of your life, that you're giving yourself away. Has that played into the specifics of anxiety or depression for you or for any of your congregants? Uh, not for me, but it has for, for, for congregants. Because one of the things I am always saying is that uh, sacrificial service is like God's Prozac or Celexa. It, it's this <laughs> happy pill. And, and there are people who, who struggle with depression and anxiety and I'm not at all opposed to taking medications for that because sometimes there's a chemical basis for it. But, but uh, the chemical, getting regulated chemically just levels the playing field. And now if you want to really find happiness and joy, uh, I think it, you'll find it in, in serving others. And you have to work around certain issues. Like a person with anxiety disorder, they probably aren't going to be able to go out there on their own and work in a homeless shelter. But you have you can bring a community around it, which, which is another whole aspect of this thing, Dan. I the call to live a kingdom life, uh, you know, you, we talked earlier about all the forces that are out there that pull us in the direction of the polarization. Well, we all are born imitators. You know, that's mimetic theory. You know, I don't know if you know Gerard at all. But we do imitate. And so if we're going to live counterculturally, we have to do it within the context of a countercultural community. And that is what the kingdom is. It's a community of people who are aspiring to live like Jesus. The reason that I ask about anxiety and depression is because I have noticed in my own life a link between my anxiety levels, and I, I have struggled with anxiety most of my life. My anxiety levels and even some depression levels, which is not normally such a thing for me, and how much political news I'm consuming, there mm. is a straight line between them. Good and, for you. And so yep. I want to see if we could maybe coax out of you some kind of a, you know, a connection here. Oh, it, it, there definitely is. This last election... Uh, I'll just tell you a story here. I, I d gave a message on um, just about how the kingdom of God is different from the kingdoms of the world and how um, our main call is to imitate Jesus. Uh, it's not to try to run the world or fix the world or think that we're wise about the world and, and just yeah, how people, good, intelligent people can think differently about these issues and don't let yourself get caught up in this whole thing. And that whole spiel. At the end of the service, a mother and daughter came up, and they're both, both bawling. <laughs> this is beautiful. Uh, and they don't normally go to our church, but they happen to go to the service this, this one time. And what had happened is the daughter, uh, who is, has just turned 18, 
but she had gotten ob- obsessed uh, with the whole political thing going on, and especially with Trump, and loathed him, despised him, disdained and hated him, and hated, and and uh, so got really involved. And and her mother says that on the one hand she was you know glad that her her daughter wants to be a responsible citizen, but on the other hand, she just she says over the last year I've seen my daughter's disposition completely change. She used to be this sweet girl and just loved Jesus and was funny and goofy and all this. And she's just got so serious and so dark and so depressed uh, because of she, she's nonstop watching the news. Uh, and the daughter knew it, but she couldn't get out of it. She was trapped. She, she wanted her old self back, but she couldn't let this go. And the sermon just kind of gave her the permission to do that. And it's like, uh, you know what? You can turn the television off once in a while. You don't have to be the political savior of the world. And, and um, I, I think a lot of folks, it can be addictive and you get sucked into it. I have to fight that myself. I, I'm a news junkie and um, I, I got to know my limits because I don't want all my brain space being taken up with all that. And it can be so dark and venomous and vitriolic. And to the degree that I'm going to watch news, I'm going to force myself to watch all versions, you know, MSNBC and Fox. Because I need to keep my brain from getting hardened in the categories, the hardening of the categories. Yeah, I, I've really uh, – it's something that I've been struggling with a lot recently and, and trying to figure out what the boundaries are for me, the host of a political podcast who nonetheless feels great anxiety about the news and about Trump. And I, Trump was an anxiety trigger for me just when he first became a candidate almost two years ago. And now I've got to learn to live with – four years at least of him being in the public spotlight and, and being a part of my life. And, uh, it's, you know, I don't, not to get too personal, but it's been interesting. Cause on the one hand, I feel like it's a difficult thing for me to go through that. I'll be glad I went through. On the other hand, I have some agency. I can decide how much reading I really need to do for this show or for my own self. Um, it's also mm-hmm. a fascinating time to be paying attention to politics. It's really hard. Um, I just kind of wanted to see what you thought about that because I, I've heard you speak about this stuff. You know, it does me good to think back and maybe I do a little reading on this, but read a little bit about the Roman Senate and what went on there. <laughs> and these yahoos who were, you know, Caesar and, and Pilate and Herod and it is in this kind of period of time where Jesus and Paul are operating, yeah. you know, they're throwing orgies in the Senate to raise money. And Nero has the senators all have, have to share their wives. I mean, it was debauchery and murder and it was just as demonic as it gets. And look how anxious Jesus was about all of that. You know? And he ends up getting crucified by the thing, but he wasn't worried about that. You know? And, and I, so I sometimes put myself back in the first century. Uh, and Jesus didn't go around saying, we got to do something about this. And it wasn't because some people say, well, he didn't live in a democracy. They couldn't do anything. Hell no, man. People, the, the Jews were talking about this all the time. And there's a lot they could do where they're sabotaging their trucks. They're, you know, right. stringing their horses. There's a lot they could do to vote. Uh, but Jesus is saying, keep your eye on the prize, man. Stay in the center of, of God's will here and just build the kingdom. Because um, in the end, that's in the end, all the Caesars and the Trumps and are going to go away. And in the end, what's going to reign is going to be the, the kingdom that's built on the cross. Okay, so this brings us to 
political nonviolent action, though, because these phrases of Jesus's, if a Roman soldier basically forces you to go a mile, which was the limit that they could legally force a Jew, you go with them two miles, you kind of show them up, you make them feel bad peacefully about what they did. You turn the other cheek if someone strikes you to say, to sort of show them peacefully the violence of the action that they're taking. And you, you are willing to absorb the pain and the suffering yourself as a follower of Christ in order to show the injustice of the power structures of the world. I think about Martin Luther King. I think about Gandhi. I think about Thomas Merton speaking out about the Vietnam War. I think about Dorothy Day starting the Catholic Workers Movement. So where does this fit into your whole thing? Because you kind of start off, you're talking about, hey, look, politics is just not our main focus. It shouldn't be. We are here to live into the kingdom. We're here to bleed personally. But now here is a direct connection. These guys got their political theories and their approaches directly from the teachings of Jesus. And they want to use that to show the evil power structures of the world to show uh, the evilness of whatever the particular empire is at the time, to do so nonviolently, to be willing to suffer, to show people the truth. How do you think about that? Yeah, yeah very, very good question. I, I'm not as familiar with uh, Merton and uh, uh, Dorothy Day, but Gandhi and, and King I am. And uh, from what you said, it sounds like they're, they're similar. What was unique about them is, is – uh, they're like they're like a giant version of the crucifixion. It, you know, King would before before uh, his marches, he would tell people that I don't want you marching. I don't care what you believe when you march, but I don't want you doing this unless you can vow that you will not retaliate. Uh, when they release the dogs, you you're not allowed to fight back. When they hose you down, you're not allowed to fight back. When they arrest you, you're not allowed to fight back. You just take it because that's part of the message. We have to expose the ugliness of this. And I don't want you marching unless you're doing it, not just for your own liberation, but for the liberation of your oppressor. Because even though they don't know it, this dehumanized system is dehumanizing all of us. And that's where he says, so long as any one of us is not free, none of us are really free. And he's talking about the lack of freedom on the, on the oppressor. Uh, and so this is a way of, of folks getting together and giving a collective ouch. Uh, and, and they're absorbing this as a way of exposing the, the ugliness of, of the, the injustice that's going on. And they're doing it not just for themselves, but for the sake of, 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 of the oppressor. Uh, it's a distinct, brilliant kingdom movement. In some ways, Gandhi's even more brilliant because he wasn't explicitly Christian. <laughs> yeah, but he, did uh, credit, but he did credit Jesus with a big part of that, yeah. He did. And I, I think he said, you know, if a fraction of the Christian, professing Christians actually live the way Jesus calls them to live, he said, I think the world would, would be converted in a generation. Because he loved what, what what Jesus taught, he just he said the reason I'm not a Christian is I don't see it in Christians. Uh, it's just not being lived out. So I, I think there's a place uh, for 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 this. You know, at, at Woodland Hills, um, the church I pastor, we we had a, a oh, this is probably 12, 13 years ago now, but there's an inner city school that was just dilapidated. It, it was it scored in the bottom of the test scores. There was talk about possibly shutting it down. So we got together and we said, what can we do to serve this this uh, this school, this inner city school? Now we, we could have got together and said, okay, uh, how should we lobby? How should we vote? How should we, you know, fix this politically? And I think if we would have done that, Dan, I'm sure of it, there would have been a divide because if you're going to get in the budget, now that's a pretty complex thing, and and people have different ideas about economy. You know, what's the best way to help the poor? Do you tax the rich or do you give tax breaks to the rich? And okay, boom, there we go. 
And then we would have spent a lot of time doing arguing about something that God doesn't call us to do and no time uniting around the one thing that God does call us to do. What God does call us to do is to bleed. And so we just ask the question, how can we bleed for this school? And so we go to the school, which is always a wise thing to do, and ask, what do you need? And first thing I need is mentors. So we supplied, we still have like 50 mentors who go there and help out with the reading program. And they need school supplies. So we buy school supplies and they need paint and walls to be painted. So some people donate paint and we get out there and start painting. They need some brickwork done. And so we got a mason in our church who comes and does the brickwork. They need a playground. The playground was completely unsafe. And so we're able to, and, and as we're doing this, the community starts getting involved, you know, because everyone sees like, oh, what's going on here? Every Saturday, these people show up and they're just renovating this place. And so some people start donating stuff. You know, the subway starts bringing over food every lunch period of time. And uh, one guy has his tractor that he brings over and helps us to plow some stuff. And I, it was a, it, it just it gets created this momentum. They need windows. And so we, we've got new windows. And it was a beautiful thing. Now, and as a result, some people started coming to the church that otherwise wouldn't be coming to the church. But one of the things that happened that we weren't even thinking about was it put that school on the radar screen of the powers that be. And it raised the question, why is it that there's enough money for these suburban schools to buy million-dollar football stadiums, but there's not enough money to repair broken windows in the inner-city school? What is up with that? It's property taxes, but yeah. It it, it, it just raised the question. Um, And and I see, I think if the church would just be the church— it would have a massive, massive impact on the broader culture. Not by going at it directly, but by just doing what we're supposed to do. Yeah, I'm trying to give, give this illustration. Do you know that in the 1860s, there's a massive social movement, Charles Finney and that whole Christian social movement, uh, where they were really addressing a lot of social issues. One of the issues, and I didn't know this, I just read this article uh, a couple months ago. One of the major issues was that the abortion rate was at least as high in 1860s as it was, like 1860 as it was prior to Roe versus Wade, it was massive. And so the Christians asked the question: What can we do to help women with unwanted pregnancies go full term? And a good percentage of these women were were uh, uh, prostitutes. They didn't have the, the kind of advanced birth control that we have now. And and so the the church started coming alongside of these women, and they. They uh, basically they, they formed these organizations where they said, uh, look, if, if we'll walk full term with you and we'll help, help you financially and emotionally uh, to have this baby. And then uh, if you want to keep the baby, we'll help you raise the baby. If you want to give the baby up, well, we'll place the baby with a good family. They got this big adoption thing going on. And, and they just came around, these, these mothers. By 1910, the abortion rate in, in America was cut over half just by virtue of doing that. Now, compare that, compare that with what's gone on since 1973. It's been to the advantage of of one political party to dangle the carrot of the uh, couple hot button issues, one of them being abortion, to to associate it with with an economic, uh, a conservative economic kind of policy. And that's these are the folks who really devise this thing. Uh, And and they keep dangling that carrot out there. Hey, you you know, you you want to say babies vote for us, want to say babies vote for us. What in the last 40 years have they gotten as a result of that? And they're still trying. Whereas when the church just did it, you cut the abortion rate in half. Uh, it's it's an example of, I think, what can happen if we would just do it. So I don't want to, I mean, I, I love this call to action. I'm, I feel convicted by it myself, even though, even though, like, obviously, I think one of the things that I'm supposed to do in the world is, like, talk about things, i.e. I. podcasting. 
But I, well, that, I feel that, that, that's fair. But I, I, I mean, do. I, I take time to write books. You know, right. so I mean, you got to do your call. I'm not saying everyone's supposed to be on a soup kitchen 24 hours a day. Yet, yet you have a calling. But so and that itself is a way of serving. So I love that. I love the call to action. I'm a little bit wary of how neatly we can divide between kingdom work and political work. I think, for instance, I worry about if Christians completely remove themselves from these worlds, where will be the caring mayors, the school board members, uh, you know, the state senators? If you have people who – there has to be some – group of Christians who are called to civic life, who are well suited for it and who can be informed by their faith, love their neighbor on the Senate committee to love the poor person in their district, you know, to, you know what I'm saying? And, and I, I think a lot of the people who choose to listen to this show, a disproportionate percentage of them may be those kind of people. I, I wonder sometimes if I'm one of those people, if I'm called to any kind of public service how do you how do you mesh that together? Well, you're raising a good point. I, I you know, and I could be uh, part of what's going on with me. I'll confess this: is that uh, the the, ch- the church has for so long, not just in America, but certainly in America, uh, has been f- so long fused with politics that I am kind of the proverbial pendulum swing, going saying we got to get over here, and and you know. And if it means fasting from politics for 50 years, let's do it. Uh, because the church, I, I don't, you know, Jim Wallace, God bless him, I love the guy. I, I've had a number of debates with him. And uh, our main disagreement is this. I, I, it's like he, he also agrees that the church, we are the body of Christ insofar as we're actually doing the work of Christ, which is you know, sacrificing for the poor, the homeless, and all that. And by that criteria, he agrees the church hardly exists. And so I'm, I've my whole thing to him is saying, so Jim— if you agree that the church hardly exists, why are you spending all of your time telling Christians how to vote? And, and he also agrees that we should be leading by moral authority, which we would win if we would just begin to do it. And so I, I, I probably am overreacting some, uh, you know, okay. but I, I, I have this urgency on this whole thing. So I want to respect that urgency and I respect that message. I think, I, I think we're agreeing that probably there is somewhere in the middle, but it's probably not – like put it this way, my aunt-in-law, my wife's aunt, works at a pro-life advocacy group that actually individually cares for mothers who have unwanted pregnancies, whatever. I love that. She is called to that. Uh, and I and I think that that work involves politics um, because of where she's positioned within the city in which she lives and they have relationships with, uh, you know, the mayor and what whatnot. Most people are not called to politics, and so most of us could probably do good to just think about what we can do individually or what our church group or our small group could do. Right, right, But there right. will be some people who have an aptitude for this and probably have a vocation for it. Okay. Right? I, 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 don't, I, I don't question that at all. What I would say to folks who feel called into this is – what, two things, okay? One is respect the ambiguity because, you know, we used to know that art, that politics was the art of compromise. And, and somewhere along the line, we, we forgot that. But it, to make this thing work, and this is what that whole balance of powers that you're talking about earlier is about. It's set up so you have to compromise. Uh, otherwise, the system does not work. The democracy does not work. 
and and it, right now we're going down a road where it, it's not working very well. Uh, respect that, so that whatever opinions you have politically, you understand that a good, decent Christian person could disagree with you. That's just in the nature of things. The second thing is because governments are in, in, not part of God's ideal world, uh, the whole lording over system, there is a corrupting influence in it. The higher up you go, the more there's a corrupting influence. Chuck Colson talks about this in his book, God and Government. And, and he got sucked in by it. You know, it's because it's, and, and so a king of person is going to have to ask some serious questions. The higher up you go, if, if you're doing local politics, I don't see any kind of incongruity there uh, at all. But when you get to the point where you have to start, and I'm a pacifist, so I'll just be, come out with this, where you have to order people to go to war and kill and stuff like that. You got to ask the question, how does this integrate with your kingdom allegiance? Or, you know, Chuck Colson says in in government, if you're in high office, uh, you have to lie. You have to deceive. You have to, you know, this is it it goes with it. uh, And and you got to be okay with that. Well, I couldn't be okay with that. But every person has has to ask themselves those kind of questions. If my allegiance is to Jesus, can I do that without compromising it in this political sphere? And you just get to wrestle with that. Are there any issues today that are worth nonviolently protesting and absorbing violence in oneself, like for the civil rights movement, or you'd you'd possibly agree ending the Vietnam War might have been worthy of demonstration um, for people who were able? Is there nothing today... Is there no, you know what I mean? Yeah, see, I, 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 and you and I may well just disagree with this, but like, I, and I have this discussion with my pacifist friends a lot, but um, I am not an expert on on just war. I, I, I like, do, do I know enough to know that this war is just and this war is not just? Uh, is this something that 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 uh, only an evil person would disagree with me? You know, I, I would if that was the case. That only an evil person would see it differently. Uh, then maybe I'd protest that. But if it's if it's an issue of just war, man, it, those are really, really complex issues. But let me use you as a pendulum as an analogy. So you're saying you're going to be the pendulum swinger in the conversation amongst Christians about uh, how involved in politics we should be. And you would probably agree that it's best for Jim Wallace – uh, who, by the way, runs Sojourners and wrote a book called God's Politics, for those of you who don't know who he is, you would agree that it's probably best for so for Jim Wallace to have a good argument and for you to have the best possible argument on the other side, and you guys will talk about this and it will be helpful. Isn't it good that there were people saying, hey, this Vietnam thing sure seems to be causing some problems and it's unclear what the benefit is, and it's good that there were all these people willing to suffer to put forward that message so that it wasn't just it, what I'm saying is politics in America, big decisions are made by triangulating the force of either side of an issue. Right? So when a bunch of people show up, like for instance, tea party protesters show up to all of these town hall meetings back in 08, 09, 2010, they got stuff done. And because they showed force in the right place, Nonviolently, uh, they made their sort of demands, their their views known, and they changed the House and the Senate. When King got his demonstrators in the streets, and you got cameras showing these white, uh, you know, police chiefs bashing these black bodies against the ground, 
things happened. So um, my question is, is there anything today worth absorbing pain for? Sure. On a political level? I mean, I, I don't know if I have the answer. There's a ton of things that are worth paying for, and that's what we're, in the game we're called to do. You're called to bleed. But you're asking for a specific, specific political kind of thing. Well, um, maybe, yeah. And, and the, the, the difference I would see between the uh, Martin Luther King thing and the Vietnam War thing is that we, there you have demonstrable injustice uh, where you know blacks aren't allowed to go to certain restaurants and whatever. Whereas when you're dealing with war, it's a little more complex. And I'm opposed to all war. I, you know, so I want to live in a way that protests all of it. I just don't know if I can be the wise advisor of those in charge and say, I know what is just or what's not just. You know, I, I, I don't trust any of them. You know, it's like, okay, like, for example, um, part of the call of the church is to be in solidarity with those who are on the margins and are oppressed because that's what Jesus did. And I, I think black folks in America are the victims of some it's tremendous. Just what I was going to ask you, yeah. And and uh, uh, you know, the, with the police shootings and things like that. Um, and so, so uh, I have joined some of the Black Lives Matters uh, marches. Now, here's here, here's the thing for me is that as I, if I I'm joining out of solidarity on this, and but on the other hand, I can't endorse. They're not all marching out of love, you know, for their oppressors. Uh, you get all sorts of kind of people there, and some of them say nasty stuff and do nasty stuff. And and for a while, I wanted to avoid all that because I, I you know, I feel like maybe it's compromising my witness as a kingdom person to be involved in something that is cantankerous. On the other hand, Jesus didn't worry about his reputation; he hung out with prostitutes. So I go, I go there as a, a to pray for peace, uh, to show solidarity, um, and and to you know try to help this be as godly as it can be. But that's something where I think um, I want to enter into solidarity with the people who are who are the victims. Of, and you know, I've got three black grandkids, and so it, it, it hits them personally. It kills me that I'm going to have to give different instructions to them when it comes time to drive, and I'll have to give to my white granddaughter. Uh, and and that, it's, it agrees me that we live in a country that still has that issue, uh, but it does. And it, I'm not indicting any particular police officer. But the system does not do a good enough tra- job training people to wake up to their own prejudices. You know, they say never, ne- never shoot unless uh, unless you feel threatened. The trouble is, for a lot of white folks, if you haven't gotten through a lot of training, you just feel the bar for what it is to feel threatened is a lot lower around a black man than it is around yeah. a a white person. I've and noticed so- that in my own self, and my my little brother is adopted in black, and I still notice that I'm less sure around black strangers than white strangers. Yeah, so it, we have to get in touch with those kind of prejudices right. uh, to do as much as you can do to overcome them. I, I doubt there's very few cops. There are a few, but very few who are out there who intentionally want to kill a black person. Yeah, but sure. But it's just that they are—they're scared, and you can see it in some of the videos. You know, we had this uh, uh, Philando Castile up here, and and the, the the cop holding the gun, you can see he's shaking. He, he he's he's just nervous, and so it, it takes one little action for him to get triggered, and bam. So then in answer to my question, you do think so, but you think that Black Lives Matter is, you know, sort of this demonstrable lack of justice in police departments and in the, I would, I would assume you would agree that the school to prison pipeline and these sort of unjust demonstrable facts that are happening today, that, that is the kind of stuff worth absorbing some Christ-like pain to help stop. For a kingdom person, there's got to be a kingdom motivation for doing it. Yeah. And, and, and to do that, I don't need to presuppose that I'm smarter than anybody or that I care more than anybody. I'm just trying to obey Jesus. Yeah. And that is, I think, always the kingdom call. 
Well, that seems like a good spot to end, and I know you got to go. Uh, well, thanks th- for having me on. Thank you, Greg. This is I, a lot of these are open questions. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. If people want to be in touch with you or read your books, where should they go? Uh, you can go to renew.org. It's my uh, ministry outside of Williams Church, and we have a lot of essays there. My books are on there, and you can find out everything you need, you need to know there. All right. Thanks so much, man. Peace out, brother. Well, a lot of you are probably thinking, man, I got to start reading this guy. You should follow him on Twitter, read his books, read his essays. I think he is one of the clearest thinkers in American Christianity today. You don't have to take my word for that, but that's my impression of him. Um, The song under the episode today is called Anticipation by Phantom Sun, which is one of my many uh, projects. And it's available for licensing for advertisements or your own podcast or promotional video or whatever. You can go to dancoke.net, K-O-C-H. And Reconstruct, don't forget, those of you who are interested in faith, especially the questions of doubt and, you know, controversial topics that lead people away from the church, that's what we're talking about. We're trying to do a good job. We're trying to be fair. And uh, we'd love your support. So go check that out, reconstructpodcast.com, or search for it in your apps. And, of course, for Depolarize, you can join us on Facebook in the Depolarize podcast discussion group where people share articles and ask each other questions as we all try and do this thing that is kind of increasingly popular but also feels to me increasingly unpopular when you actually get down to the actual business of Depolarizing people push back quite a bit. I think there was like a honeymoon period where everybody was like, oh yeah, this Trump thing is so crazy. We really got to find some center, find some middle ground. And I think people are kind of retreating back to their identities, their tribal identities. That's my impression. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's helpful to have a group of people around to be talking about this stuff with. So that's what we do on Facebook. And I actually don't post a ton. I'm in there, but people post really great stuff and ask great questions and sort of reach across the aisle so join that group the depolarized podcast discussion group on facebook you can follow me on twitter dan k-o-c-h and you can send me feedback at depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com thanks guys we'll see you next week